Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, welcome back, sports fans. This is Dana Augusta. You are locked in to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And this week's show, we're going to be talking about a number of different things, including a Major League Baseball legend elected to Cooperstown posthumously, and a new league forms in baseball, as well as an NBA legend coming out of retirement 17 months after he hung him up for an incredible second act. So pull up a chair, puckle in your headphones, and let's get right down to it for this week's main event. Hello and welcome back to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I am Dana Augusta, your host, and right now you are immersed in this week's main event. And this week's main event is a little bit of a, I guess you could say a personal topic of mine because um, I am a big fan, of course, as you obviously know, I'm a big fan of sports history. And throughout history, you see teams come and go, move from place to place, but the place where they left kind of leaves an indelible mark on not only the city, but the fans that they left behind. And today we're going to talk about four former pro sports franchises who I think really deserve a do-over. I think really deserve a comeback. Give the fans of that city a chance to make right with the, the franchise that had left them for what re- for one reason or another. And this week, we're going to talk about four, two of them in the NBA, one in Major League Baseball, and one in the National Hockey League. And all four of these franchises have somewhat of a cult following that they left behind. Most couple were left because of bad financial deals or not winning a lot of games. But each one of these four were very successful in their own right and very and made an incredible mark on their community and their city where they first resided. 
And the first one we're going to talk about is the only one of these four that actually won a league title, and that is the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, the Sonics began play in 1967 as part of the NBA's expansion process uh, going back, back then because that year they came into the league with another West Coast team who didn't stay long in their own city, and that was the San Diego Rockets who would leave uh, the sunny skies of, of Southern California behind and head to Houston, Texas, where they would kick, where they would keep the name Rockets, which would make even more sense being in Houston than in San Diego. But that's another main event for another day. Well, right now we're talking about the Seattle Sonics. And the Sonics started playing in their games at, at the place called the Seattle Center Coliseum which we all know now is Key Arena. And that arena was actually the cent the centerpiece of the 1962 uh, Seattle World's Fair, which is located right next to the iconic Space Needle, which dominates the Seattle skyline. Um, they've been playing there since the beginning, since day one. And they will play there throughout their most of their tenure in the Emerald City. But they did play a number of years right after their lone NBA title in 1979, they would play there. They would play actually at the Kingdom for a while because of the the, the the actual lack of seating in the in the in the Seattle Center Coliseum, and would actually draw more fans in the Kingdom at one at, at one time than actually the than the Seahawks and the Mariners did. So they were a very very successful team and drew a lot of fans in the in the Great Northwest. Um, they were playing the kingdom for a time, and during that time was one of their eras of great success. Um, 1978-79, they made it to the finals in back-to-back -back years, playing against both times against Washington. Um, they would end up winning the finals in 1979 behind, behind some unbelievable players and, and head, um, Hall of Fame head coach Lenny Wilkins. Uh, the backcourt featured the likes of Gus Williams and 1979 Finals Most Valuable Player Dennis Johnson, who will go on to win a few more titles on the East Coast with the Boston Celtics in the 1980s. Along with other key players such as Jack Sigma at center, downtown Freddie Brown, which was a dynamite long-range shooter, as, and banging down on the boards was guys like Lonnie Shelton and Paul, and Paul Silas. They were a very, very strong, strong team back in those days, right before the 1980s when the NBA was going through its doldrums. But the Sonics at that time was one of the great NBA teams and that dominance and their success would continue throughout the 80s and all into the 90s. During the 80s, they had some great teams with, with uh, Tom Chambers and uh, three-point three threats uh, such as Dale Ellis and Xavier McDaniel banging on the boards with one of them and Xavier McDaniel if a lot of people remember, was one of the more intimidating players in the NBA during the decade of excess. Of course, we're talking about the 1980s. In the 1990s, they will return to prominence and return to an elite status in the NBA thanks to the hiring of head coach George Carl. And he and his something of a psychiatrist approach to the game of basketball and his coaching would lead to even more success for the Seattle Sonics. Um... Uh, Gary Payton at point guard led the way with Sean Kemp and long-range shooting of deadlift shrimp and, and others, along with Sam Perkins, Big Smooth himself. And they would return to the finals in 1996, where, of course, they would fall short against the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, 
which was the same year that Bulls had that unbelievable 72-10 and 10 record. And that Sonics team was very, very good. But, however, the Sonics were kind of up against it at, this, at that time because of the arena that they played in, who had just, which had just gone undergone some major renovations. And for some, and Sonics ownership in the NBA was like, okay, you need another arena because it's so small and you need to update it even more or whatever, even though they had just renovated it. So that argument between the Sonics and the league continued all the way through the 2000s. And during the 2000s, they tried to, you know, get a new ownership because the owner, the owner at the time was Howard Schultz, who was a, at the time the CEO, and I think he still is, the CEO of Starbucks. He sold it to a man by the name of Clay Bennett. And Clay Bennett had promised the city, we're not going to move the, the Sonics, even though there was rumors that they were going to leave. Unfortunately, he didn't hold to his word, and he decided that we we're going to go to a greener pasture and greener plains in Oklahoma City in the Midwest, where they would go to Oklahoma City, but they would have to leave all of their records and everything behind so that if the NBA were to decide to expand again, Seattle would get first choice. And if they were to get another expansion team, I really, really hope that they would rename them the Sonics. Because with that team and that franchise had so many great teams and so many great players that come through that franchise that the city of Seattle, the great fans that they have, really deserve an NBA, an, an, another NBA franchise. Another NBA, another NBA city that used to have a team there was Buffalo. Now, Buffalo, when you think of Buffalo, you think of, of course, hockey. And you think, of course, of the, 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 the success of the Buffalo Bills. But once upon a time, and actually for a very short time, Buffalo actually had an NBA franchise named the Braves. Now, if they were to bring an NBA team back to Buffalo, I really don't think the name Braves would kind of fly right now because of the political climate of the country. But once upon a time in the early 1970s, there was a team called the Buffalo Braves, and they were pretty good, for, especially for a young expansion team, thanks to clever drafting and a diehard fan base that was just starting to get into his own when the team moved away. Now, through an early part of their, they came into the league in 1970, along with other expansion teams, with the two other expansion teams at the time, which was the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the Portland Trailblazers. The Buffalo Braves would play their home games in the Buffalo Municipal Auditorium. And to all you hockey fans out there, everybody know it as the odd. And they started, as typical expansion teams do, kind of not having a lot of success, not a lot of wins overall. But all of that would change through clever drafting. One of the people that they drafted right off was uh, a player from North Carolina named Bob McAdoo. So if you were to ha if you were to describe Bob McAdoo, so, sort of like a current player of today, the first name that I think would pop to mind would be Kevin Durant. Both of them tall, lean, very athletic, could shoot from the outside. Basically, a kind of a do it all type of player. But he was a guy, Bob McAdoo, who played in the late in the late sixties, early seventies and was a major cog for North Carolina while he was there, leading into, I think, to a couple of Final Fours that, uh, during his time in North Carolina. But he now he's in Buffalo, along with another rookie who came in who actually won Rookie of the Year, a point guard named Ernie DeGregorio, who came from Providence, who had a very great stellar career in college. 
you know, leading the Friars to a lot of success in the tournament as well. They had a very strong fan base in Buffalo, not as I mentioned. And but the one negative light about the Buffalo Braves situation was their arena situation was not the best because even though they played in a very great hockey arena, the Municipal Auditorium, they had to share it with two other teams. One, you had to share it with the Buffalo Sabres, who was also themselves an expansion team, but they had success right off, you know, in their band, in their first uh, few years in the National Hockey League, as well as Canisius College, who was a was a pretty good college program, college basketball program during that time. So basically, the, the Braves got the short end of the sticks by trying to fill different dates with their schedule. And a lot of times, those dates was not available for their game. So, so 15, I think it was 15 uh, of their regular season games had to be moved out of Buffalo to Toronto and play at Maple Leaf Gardens. So a lot of their regular, a few of their regular season games during their course of their history, which only lasted seven, actually eight years in Buffalo, had to be played north of the border at Maple Leaf Gardens, which also was kind of setting the stage for another expansion team that would come to Toronto in the 1990s. But another, that's another story. The Braves started off, as I said, like a typical expansion team. But by 1974, they had put together a great squad with with De Gregorio, also with Bob McAdoo, and another sharp shooting defensive wizard um, by the name of Randy Smith. They put together and had a couple of extra pieces around and made the playoffs for the first time. 1975, Bob McAdoo was good enough to be named the league most valuable player averaging 35 points and 14 rebounds a game for that year. Ernie DeGregorio, that same year, was named Rookie of the Year. And this, the Braves parlayed par- all of that into a winning season, a playoff appearance, but unfortunately lost to the Boston Celtics in seven games of the 1975 postseason. They would again make the playoffs again in 1976, which marked their best season ever. But behind the scenes, there was some negotiations going on about the Braves possibly leaving town. And the way they left town and the way all of that transpired is crazy, to say the least. And I'm going to get into that in a second. That year, they would lose again to the Celtics in the postseason. By 1978 was when all of this took place. Herb Levin was the owner of the Boston Celtics, who was also who was also a businessman, but he was from California. And he wanted to have a pro basketball team in California, but there was no way on God's green earth that the NBA would allow his team, the Celtics, to leave Boston to go to California. First of all, just on his face don't even sound right, but that's the situation. The owner of the Braves was John Y. Brown who was looking to get a new arena. He really didn't want to leave Buffalo, but he wanted an NBA franchise, and he wanted to stay in the Northeast. So what they did was, through the blessing of the NBA, they got together and negotiated a deal where they would actually swap franchises. Levin would become the owner of the Braves, while John Y. Brown would become the new owner of the Boston Celtics. Now, think about this. Now, as I'm telling you this, what would you do? 
or, or, or just think about how history played out. When Levin got the deal to buy the Braves, he decided at once he's going to move to California. That team would move from Buffalo with a great fan base and a great young team on the rise and move them to San Diego, California, where they would become who? The Clippers. John Ry Brown keeps the team, gets the Celtics, and is part of that great Celtic dynasty that took place in the 80s with Larry Bird, Dennis Johnson, uh, Kevin McHale, Cedric Maxwell, and the like. He owned that team while Levin, chilling at home, happy in California with the Clippers. They became the San Diego Clippers in 1979 and would stay in California and would stay in, in, in San Diego until 1984 where they would move to L.A. where you now know them as the L.A. Clippers. Their history is well documented to say the least. Meanwhile, Brown keeps the Celtics and they go on to win championships. So I ask you, who really got the better out of that deal? I'll rest my case. The next team that kind of needs to make a comeback, in my opinion, the Montreal Expos, the one team in baseball that still has a call following. Now, in my opinion, the Montreal Expos is kind of like that weird uncle that everyone has that, you know, think that his ideal vacation would be to live off the grid for a week. Or, you know, you know the ones, new ones I mean, kind of smell like hamsters. You know, you know, you know the one I mean. Well, the Expos are like that in Major League Baseball. They're like that weird, crazy uncle that everyone has. But they're fun to be around. And the Montreal Expos doing their history was not that different. They had the weird mascot and the weird ballpark at Olympic Stadium in Montreal. They had very humble beginnings, however, playing at a place called Jari Park Stadium in Jari Park, which is a which is a park in Montreal, basically a walking park. But when they were awarded a franchise in 1969, they just kind of built it out of a kit. They just kind of threw it all together, looked like a giant erector set that became their home until 1977, right after the Olympics in 1976 took place. And Jari Park was a great home for them, but when they moved to Montreal, they became they became a really, really exciting team with very notable players, such as the man they call Le Grand Orange, which is the big orange in French, a man by the name of Rusty Staub, Louisiana native, by the way. You got Rusty Staub on that team, as well as a few, few up-and-coming players that came through in the early 1980s, which was Tim Raines and Andre Dawson. Now, the Montreal Expos had two distinct flashes of greatness and success in their history. And both ended in tragic fashion, at least for fans, Bob, at least for fans. In 1981, during the strike-shortened Major League Baseball season, Montreal had, one of the, had their best season to date, making the postseason for the first time ever and would take the mighty Los Angeles Dodgers to five games in the National League Championship Series that year. With them leading in the ninth inning and with just a couple of outs away from winning the pennant for the first time ever, 
the Expos give up a home run to the least likely person on the Dodger lineup, which was catcher Rick Mundy. Rick Mundy gives the Dodgers the win and the pennant, and from that point on, that will always be known through Montreal sports lore as Blue Mundy. When Rick Mundy broke the hearts of Expos fans all over Canada as them advancing to the World Series, but they were eventually defeat the New York Yankees. Another one, and maybe even worse, situation for the Montreal Expos came in 1994 when they had by far the best team they had ever put together with the likes of Pedro Martinez, John Wetland, Moises Alou, Marquise Grissom, led by manager Felipe Alou. They had Major League's best record. Unfortunately, this was 1994. And what happened in 94, sports fans? You got it, the player strike, which canceled the season and denied Montreal a chance to finish this season, go on to the playoffs, and possibly play in the World Series that year. That dealt the Expos a major, major blow, not only for their franchise, but the future of their franchise, because the team was forced to trade off a lot of their players for money to kind of keep the franchise going. Because they were spending more money than any than they really could afford to. So they sold off a lot of their players. Pedro Martinez went on to Boston to have a Hall of Fame career. John Wetland, a couple of years later, was a World Series MVP with the Yankees. Moises Alou played a long, long time, you know, in Major League Baseball. Marquise Grissom had another outstanding stellar career with other places, most notably with the San Francisco Giants. But the, but the Expos was the one who really hurt. And by, by the 2000s, the writing was on the wall, especially when Major League Baseball had to come in and rescue the franchise to get them to continue operations. So, by the, so as time went on, they had to do something. The, the, the Montreal's uh, Olympic Stadium was crumbling and falling apart, so they decided, okay, we need to do something and we need to move on some kind of way. So by 2004, they decided, okay, it's time for us to leave. It's time for us to move on. So with that, they announced that they were going to be moving to Washington, placing a team in baseball, which is the national pastime, in Washington for the first time since 1971. And it will be renamed the uh, Washington Nationals, which, of course, most recently they won the World Series. So, but... They, when they won the World Series, they basically made mention of the Montreal Expos, a team that has been lost through history, but not through Montreal fans, it's especially if they have a number of exhibition games that the Blue Jays play in Montreal, and those games have been sold out every single time they play. So, hint, hint, Major League Baseball, think about putting another team back in Montreal and renaming them the Expos. That would be cool, especially if they bring back the red, white, and blue ball caps. Now, the last team was probably the least successful, but they had probably the biggest following for a team that didn't quite, that didn't really quite have a lot of success on the ice. But they have a devoted fan base even to this day, and not to mention have one of the coolest sports logos you would ever see. And that, of course, I'm talking about the Hartford Whalers of the, of the NHL. Now you know them as the Carolina Hurricane, 
who was who has been a pretty successful team since moving down to Raleigh. But they began life as the New England Whalers of the World Hockey Association in 1970 in 1972. And actually, that was their first year of existence. They won the WHA championship, which was something called the Arco World Trophy. And they and they were a pretty solid team known as the New England Whalers for a long, long time. And then they decided to change their name in 1974 to the Hartford Whalers after moving into the brand new Hartford Civic Center, you know, which had been their home from that point on, which is one of the smallest, yet one of the most intimate hockey arenas in all of the NHL. They joined the NHL in 79 when the two leagues merged into the NHL, bringing in such teams as bringing in, I believe one of the teams they brought in was the Edmonton Oilers. They also brought in the Winnipeg Jets. They all joined the NHL in 1979. And once again, they started off as the New England Whalers and they relocated to Hartford in 74. Most of the team's success early on was led by a 50-year-old man by the name of Gordy Howe, Mr. Hockey. Yes, folks, he played until he was in his 50s. So we may be seeing that with Tom Brady, but you never know. Uh, they had three winning seasons throughout their whole entire tenure in the NHL that ended in 1997 when they relocated to North Carolina but they have were in the small they were in the NHL's smallest market playing in Hartford they had playing in the NHL's smallest arena in Hartford Civic Center and the owners were like okay we need to expand and we try to need to move or do something but the problem with them was that they were playing in a small market surrounded by four major markets that were four major hockey markets for that matter. You had the two teams in New York, the Rangers and the Islanders. You also had the, the, the rival Boston Bruins, and you also had the New Jersey Devils, all within a relatively small, confined area. Where they, were trying to com they were trying to compete with three other more well-established NHL franchises, Especially the fact of the Islanders, who had just won something like five consecutive Stanley Cups. You had the Boston Bruins and the New York Rangers, who were original six teams, you know, and they were one of those. And the, and the Whalers were just this small team off to the side, very small market. So the writing was on the wall, and they decided to announce that a possibility of them moving away. But... The fans of Hartford and all the Whaler fans in New England got together and started something called the Save the Whale program. Not saving the whales, save the whale, meaning the Hartford whale. And Pucky the whale, which was their mascot. Save them, keep them in Hartford. And for a while, it kind of worked as well there because their season ticket total started to rise. But unfortunately, it wasn't enough. And the ownership of the Whalers decided... We're going to move anyway. But what they left behind in Hartford were a group of fans that loved the Whalers. They loved the Civic Center because it was them. It was their home. It was just part of their life. And it's like that with every franchise that I talked about. It was like that with the Whalers. It was like that with the Sonics. It was like that with the Buffalo Braves. And, of course, it was like that with the Montreal Expos. Four franchises that in the hearts and minds of those fans in those cities are still alive and is hoping for a second act. I hope in their infinite wisdom, they 
that some of the leagues and league owners may want to give them that second act. Might make sports a little bit better. At least that's my opinion. And now, this week's top five. Just a reminder to everyone out there that's listening to my podcast, the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, please take a listen to some other podcasts that are proud members of the Sports History Network, including the Pigskin Dispatch, hosted by Darren Hayes, where he talks about a different subject every single day in the world of football and world of football history. I'm going to be a guest on his show coming up pretty soon, where we're going to be discussing the number 24 significant players that wore the number 24, which is an ongoing series on his podcast, The Pigskin Dispatch. Also check out Jeremy McFarlane, my little brother in the podcasting business. I, I call him J-Mac for short. He go, uh, he's, his show, the Football is Family podcast, we talked about everything football and football fandom, as well as, as well as John Gidley's Football Attic, and as well as so many others are part of the Football uh, Sports History Network right here. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about sports history coming up right after this short break. We, you are heading headlong right into this week's top five. We're back with this week's top five. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your humble host, Dana Augusta, and we're going to be talking about the top five sports history events that took place between the days of March 14th and March 20th throughout the history of sports. And number five, we're going to go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where the Milwaukee Braves were formed. That's right. The the Braves, who were in Boston since since 1876, when they moved to town as the Boston Red Stockings, which we're actually going to get into a little bit later on in this segment. They started off as the Boston Red Stockings, and over the years, they went through a number of different names and settled on the Boston Braves in the early part of the 20th century. And they would stay in Boston until 1953, where they announced this past week in 1953 that they were going to be moving out of Boston out of Braves Field to brand new Milwaukee County Stadium in Milwaukee Wisconsin where they would eventually set numerous National League attendance records during their first few years in Milwaukee as well as capturing the 1957 World Series the Braves are one of only two franchises to think of that actually won championships while playing in three different cities. The Braves won championships in Boston in 1914, as well as Milwaukee in 1957, and later in Atlanta in 1990, 1995, I believe it is. Yeah, 1995, uh, they won the World Series. So the Braves, as well as the Rams of the NFL, also won championships playing for three different cities. The Rams won it in Cleveland, 
one one in L.A. and one one in St. Louis. So the Braves and the Rams have very distinct uh, historical footnotes there. But the Braves would, had announced this this week in history back in 1953 that they were going to be moving to the Midwest, moving to Milwaukee, where they would have loads of success until they would move out of uh, move to Atlanta in 1966. Uh, number four. This week, back in 1915, we're going back ways, uh, the Olympic Organizing Committee uh, decided that they were going to cancel the sixth Summer Olympics due to World War I. Now, this would be the first time that an Olympic Games would actually be canceled due to war. And that was the case because Europe was embroiled in World War I at the time. And the site of the sixth Olympic Games, which would be in 1916, was actually going to be in Berlin, Germany. They would end up hosting the Games uh, 20 years later, which would be the famous Jesse Owens Olympics in Berlin, and that's that one actually held. But uh, 1916, the Olympics were canceled for the first time due to war. And that was going to be in Berlin, Germany in 1916. They would, the, the, the Olympics would continue uh, in 1920, which would be held, which was held in London. Uh, so the Olympics would resume four years later, well, from this case, uh, five years later in London. But the uh, Olympics in 1916 was going to be canceled, and they made that announcement this week in 1915. Number three, going all the way back to the 19th century, 18, 1869 to be exact, and that was when the Cincinnati Red Stockings become America's first pro sports franchise. The Cincinnati Red Stockings was the first professional baseball team, and a lot of people back then I read was not quite all that happy that you're actually going to be paying players, because baseball up until that point in time was just an amateur sport, you know, played by gentlemen, that sort of thing, but now they put together a team, that, and, they, and the players were actually going to be paid, which was to the horror of a lot of 19th century fans and people of the time and the red stockings had this unbelievable record starting off because they were they won i think something like 35 or 40 consecutive games before playing uh in brooklyn for the what was then sort of like a sort of like the league championship against a team from brooklyn called the brooklyn atlantics and the game went into extra innings but a but due to an error in in that in that 10th inning brooklyn Claimed the league championship and defeated the Cincinnati Red Stockings. A couple of seasons later, the team would end up moving away. Actually, in 1876, most of the team put together by a man by the name of Harry Wright would move the team out of Cincinnati and start playing in Boston and keep the name the Red Stockings. Now, the Cincinnati Red Stockings that we were just talking about is not the Cincinnati Reds. That team would come a little bit later on. This team, the Red Stockings, is also not a precursor to the Red Sox either. The Red Stockings that we're talking about now actually still exist, and they call they are called now the Atlanta Braves. But the Red, but the Braves can lend their heritage all the way back to this team in Cincinnati, starting in 1869, which is the subject of this week's number three uh, topic and number three event that happened this week in history. Number two, speaking of baseball. Ben Johnson, 
would start the American League. Now, Van Johnson was his owner and leading member of this, of this small minor league circuit called the Western League back in the 1890s. And he would put together a proposal to kind of show to the National League that, okay, I got these group of teams. You can expand the league if you want to. I'm all in. You know, I'm willing to help out. But the National League owners being greedy and conceited as they were back in that time, didn't even give him a hearing. So he decided, which is a lot like what Lamar Hunt did some 60 years later with the American Football League, here in 1900, Ben Johnson decides that I'm going to create my own league. And the, the league that he created was going to be called the American League, which still exists today. Now, a number of those, well, actually most of those teams still exist today. Uh, in fact, they started off in 1903, which was actually their very first, 1901, excuse me, the very next season was, was actually their first year of operation. And the, and the teams that started that, that started were as follows. The Chicago White Stockings, you know, I know it's the Chicago White Sox. The Washington Senators, which moved out of Washington, that version of the Senators, moved to Bloomington, Minnesota, where they became the Minnesota Twins. The Milwaukee Brewers, not that Brewers, but the Milwaukee Brewers that you know of, would move to St. Louis and become the St. Louis Browns, and in the mid-50s would leave St. Louis and move to Baltimore and become the Orioles. You also have a, a team that everybody still knows that's still around, the Detroit Tigers. Another team, the Cleveland Blues, which would change their name to the Cleveland Indians in like right around 1905, 1905, 1906, something like that, they changed their name to the, to the uh, Cleveland Indians. Uh, the Boston Americans, which changed their name to the Boston Pilgrims, which you now know as the Boston Red Sox. The Philadelphia Athletics, which had been in Philadelphia forever, then they moved to Kansas City, and then from Kansas City moved to Oakland, and you now know them as the Oakland A's. And last but not least, the Baltimore Orioles, not that Orioles, but that that version of the Orioles will move to New York and start playing in a place called Hilltop Park, which would be they would be renamed the New York Highlanders, and then from the Highlanders they would become the New York Yankees. So that's where the American League started back at this time in 1900 by a, a, a maverick by the name of Ben Johnson, and the number one event that took place this week. In ninth, in, uh, this week in sports history took place in 1995. And it basically was the genesis of a fax sent to the Chicago Bulls. And the fax simply read, I'm back. And who I'm talking about? 1995 was, of course, one Michael Jeffrey Jordan who announced that he was Coming out of retirement from playing baseball, and 17 months after he announced his retirement, Michael Jordan came back to the Chicago Bulls to be a full-time player once again. And he played his first game back that night, well, the next night, against the Indiana Pacers, who at the time, the Indiana Pacers was one of the elite teams in the Eastern Conference, who they would battle for years and years to come. This will be the beginning of Michael Jordan's second act in the NBA with the Bulls, wearing a very unusual number, wearing, instead of wearing number 23, he wore number 45. So that night, in his first game back, the rustiness showed. Uh, he actually finished with 19 points 
as the uh, Pacers knocked off the Bulls 103 to 96 at Market Square Arena. But the world came to, I, for some people, they were jubilant. For other non Bulls fans, not so much. That the greatest player in the world was actually back in the ba- actually back in a basketball uniform in the Bulls uniform, and that was the beginning of a second act, which the Bulls would eventually win three more three more world championships, three capture three straight during his tenure during the sec- during his second act with the Chicago Bulls after his retirement. So that was this week's top fives, and we're gonna close the show out with this week's shout out. Right now, we're going to do this week's shout-out, and this week's subject of this week's shout-out is someone who I idolized as a kid. Not only he was a great baseball player, but he was also a tremendous human being and someone that a lot of people in a lot of different generations look up to because of his spirit, because of his talent, and because of his humanitarian work. And of course, I'm talking about none other than Roberto Clemente. Now, just to give you a little peek behind the curtain, Roberto Clemente died about three months before I was even born. But I read so many things about him and seen so many clips and things about him that I just I just became a big fan of his uh, because of all of the things that he stood for, not only for baseball, but for the Latin community as well. This past week in 1973, he was elected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, which was 11 weeks after his fatal plane crash, in which he was delivering supplies to Nicaragua not too long after that country suffered a very devastating earthquake. And he, along with a lot of people, went tried to go down to Nicaragua to help out and give supplies to the much-needed people of that country. And, and when the plane took off, on New Year's Eve of 1972, the plane was never seen again. It was heavily loaded with supplies, and and it was some, some, something of a rickety airplane, according to some reports. And it crashed over the Atlantic, and his body was never found, um, which kind of leads to a little bit more of his mysteriousness and towards his mysterious passing. But the one thing that we're left with is memory and of the great man and his great career with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, just to give you a little indication, Roberto Clemente became the first Latin player ever to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, he had 3,000 career hits exactly on the nose, and he got that hit in his last game against the New York Mets in brand-new Three River Stadium. Um, in total, he had 1,305 runs batted in with 240 home runs. With a career batting average of 317, 12-time Gold Glove winner, four-time National League batting champ, 12-time All-Star. His career lasted from 1955 to 1972. And during that span, he was with a Pirates organization that won two world championships. One in 1960, thanks to the miracle home run by Bill Mazeroski over the New York Yankees. And then... In 1971, where he was the centerpiece, where he was the star of that of that series, winning the uh, MVP honors in 1971 Fall Classic. 
And after his passing, Major League Baseball decided to give something, make have an award that is very similar to the Walter Payton Award for you know community excellence and community involvement and volunteerism and helping others. And he, they named that one after Roberto Clemente, the Roberto Clemente Award. His numbers retired by the Pirates, obviously, and he is a national hero in Puerto Rico as well as a cultural icon to all Latin and Hispanic players throughout all of baseball. It is also a very, very deep, and I, I'm, I'm basically a huge fan of Roberto Clemente. If anybody knows me, knows that knows that right off. So I want to thank everybody for joining me. And that will wrap up this week's uh, Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Augusta. Thank you for joining me. And everybody within the sound of my voice, have a great week. Thanks for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows... Or who knows, maybe even write an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.